Good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, Ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio. And to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Mark. Patrick, uh, this conversation with Scott Mann, who's the president at Man Up Leadership Training, uh, is, is, you know, we talk about being inspiring and informing. Th- this one's important. Scott, good morning. Hey, good morning, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Scott, I, you know, your, your title, when I, I'm doing a little bit of research on you, um, the lead thing you say about yourself is warrior poet. What does that mean? Well, I guess maybe it's a reflection of my, uh, my increasing age, Mark. I've, I've come to believe that the warrior poet is, uh, is kind of the mantra or the character that I'm living into. I, I believe that um, I'm a story, you know, I've lived the life of a warrior, uh, most of my adult life as a Green Beret, but um, I'm to a point in my life now where the storytelling component of, of the miles I've run and the stars I've, I've incurred and the things I've seen, and more importantly, the lessons I've learned, I think, uh, are, need to be told in the form of story, and I've just always been a fan of warrior poets and storytellers, and I think that they hold a lot of promise for uh, leadership in the 21st century, so that's just kind of how I see myself. That and having just spent a couple of days with you uh, at Man Camp there in in Tampa, and getting to know you better, uh, I, I get that you are that, um, Patrick. We 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 sat around. Literally, it was the coldest day in Tampa. It was like forty five in the morning. So. That's rough. Yeah, That's I rough. know it was That's rough. rough. Uh, and we <laughs> sat around in the in the back of Man Camp around this big iron fire pit and kind of just hit the pause button on life and just thought about what's the next what do the next three years look like and uh, it was really important um, uh, to do that just to take a day off but Scott you're what you're working on now tell us just so our listener knows a little bit about um, about you the the people who listen to the show they're interested in leadership they're interested in the businesses they're interested in kind of all the things we've been talking about How'd you get to where you are today? Well, you know, for me, uh, it's been a journey, just like, I guess, all of your listeners, Mark. But I will tell you, very early in life, I decided uh, at about age 14 that I wanted to be a Green Beret. Um, and it, I grew up in a little logging town in, uh, in, in Mount Ida, Arkansas, where we didn't even have a stoplight. Um, and uh, happened to see a, a Green Beret come into our soda shop one day. And the minute I saw that guy in his, uh, in his class A's and his um, uh, his green beret and his shine jump boots, I knew that's what I wanted to do. You know, I just I knew the minute I saw him. Just like that. And uh, just like that. And you know, I think it's just one of those things. A lot of us have that experience in our life. And you know, it never changed for me. I I, I spent the next ten years of my life literally just training and preparing to become a green beret. It was all I could think about. And I did that my entire life, 23 years almost in the Army, 18 of that as a, as a special operator, as a Green Beret, uh, working in far-flung places around the world. And it was just, I just fell in love with it. And, I, you know, on the day I retired, I looked at my three sons and I said, you know, I, 
it's a it's a lucky man that can say that his life actually was better than he dreamed it would be as a fourteen year old boy, and that's and, and I'm, I meant every word of it. I bet you can close your eyes, and it doesn't take you too long to put yourself right back in that shop in Arkansas and connect with that feeling that sets you on a mission for your whole life. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's funny you say that cause, because that is the story that I usually tell in every setting is I tell that story because for me, it was, uh, it was that decisive moment. It was that critical moment in my life where I knew what I was put on this earth to do. And it was a crazy journey through a lot of failures and disappointments and, you know, frankly, a loss of a lot of friends and, you know, time with my family. But, yeah, I mean, I knew it right in that moment, and I can still feel it. I can still, I can just, I, it's, it's because it was so, um, you know, it was just so transformational for me when I, when I, when I knew in that moment what I was supposed to do. And, uh, yeah, I still hold it very dear. You've got, you've got young sons now, um, about some are a little older than that age that you had. I wonder if any of them have had that transformational moment yet in their life. Uh, you know, I think so. My oldest son, Cody, is about to go in Army ROTC. He's 17. But, you know, he told me about a year ago, hey, Dad, I want to, you know, I want to go my own path, but I want to be a Green Beret as well. You know, and it, and it floored me, frankly, when he told me. Hmm. Uh, and, and I was pretty, you know, I was pretty taken aback. And I think the reason, Mark, was because I have seen so much combat and right. I have seen so many friends friends fall. And, you know, it's it's one thing when you're in it. And then when you think about your son, you're yeah, like, yeah. wow, right. you know, that's a right. whole new level. And, and I was really kind of floored. And my wife, I think she, she saw that and she said, come here, I want to show you something. And she took me down the hallway. You remember our hallway there where all the kids' drawings are. Yeah. And she said... She said, she pointed at Cody's portion of the wall, and she said, tell me what about this surprises you. And every single drawing he had done since he had clenched a blue crayon in his fist was of guys jumping out of airplanes, wow. you know, uh, ships, soldiers. I mean, it, and, I, and I just smiled, and I said, yeah, he's, you know, he's had that moment. And, and so my other two, not yet, but, you know, I'm hoping maybe, uh, you know, maybe something besides Army. We'll see. You spent, um, was it three tours overseas? Well, more than that. I spent three tours, three long tours in Afghanistan and multiple what we call short tours, anywhere between 45 and 90 days. I did a tour in Iraq. I did multiple tours in Colombia. So probably half of my 23-year career was abroad, at least. And the other half was getting ready to go. You know, with with the kind of work you were doing, I wouldn't expect you would be able to tell us any stories, but I would imagine that there was there were some pretty big lessons that that you learned. You know, the the hard way, I guess. Um, I mean, none of it sounded easy. That led you to do what you're doing now. Maybe you can help us figure out how how did what was the transition, not necessarily the transition from the military to private life, but what was it while you were in the military, you said, I can continue this work because of what I've learned, and this is what that work will be? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, you know, I actually teach off of that now. I, I do a lot of coaching, a lot of training. I teach civilian workshops twice a year on Green Beret leadership, 
so yeah, I mean, I've actually carried uh, the the core framework of what I learned in all those years as a Green Beret with me. And, and I think the first thing that might be helpful is to understand that Green Berets are different than any other kind of Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, uh, where they're very good at, at basically, you know, breaking things and taking people out. Uh, Green Berets do some of that. But our specialty is we are like a modern-day Lawrence of Arabia, uh, or I often say we're a combination of Jason Bourne, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. You know, we, we, we're experts <laughs> at going into uh, we're experts at going into rough places and parachuting in below the noise, uh, Mark, and then and then connecting at exactly the right spot with precisely the right person: tribal chief, village elder, slum dweller all for the purpose of building deep relationships and then helping people from the bottom up stand up against tyranny. In fact, our motto is De Oppresso Libera or Free the Oppressed. And we work in very small teams, uh, 12 people. We speak the language. We immerse ourselves in the culture. We get surrounded on purpose. Um, and, yeah, I, I think that today in our trust-depleted, conflict-riddled world, this notion of coming in below the noise, of making connections with real people at a local level, building deep relationships, and then helping them stand on their own and leading from that place, that's, that's exactly uh, what we need today uh, for leadership. So, yeah, that's really what I teach and what I, what I stand for. How You know, we talk on the show a lot about relationships and, and how important they are in, in business and just in life, right, how you build relationships. And I think that's where we connected right off the bat. Right, right. How, you know, we have the advantage, like, if I'm going to go build relationships with, with a, a new customer or an ally, I want to build an alliance with an organization – I live in the same country. I have the same culture. I speak the same language. I, you know, we listen to the same radio. How challenging, I mean, I know the answer is very. So when you don't have, they're as opposite from us as you could be. How, kind of where do you start? Yeah. Well, you know, I think where you start is your mindset. I, I believe that a lot of the biases that exist between different cultures uh, even, you know, even here in the United States, between different ethnicities, different races, it's all mindset. Um, you know, if you think about it, humans have been around this earth for 200,000 years, more or less, um, in, in varying forms. And, you know, generally speaking, we're all hardwired the same way. You know, when we were, when we were coming up uh, in the beginning there, we didn't have fur, we didn't have claws, we didn't have fangs. Uh, and so we really had to band together to survive. Uh, humans are social creatures more so than any animal on the planet. And that hasn't changed a bit. That, that, that is still just as prevalent as it is as it was back then. The problem is now, Mark, it's become this hyper-connected world where we think everything's a tweet and an SMS message. And the reality is uh, social connections are how we survive. They're how we get things done. And they are just as prevalent and important as they were several hundred thousand years ago. The only difference is we've lost the ability to do it. Hell, language has only been around for about 10,000 years. The modern nation state for about 5,000. So, you know, it's very new stuff that we've socially evolved into. Um, The real leaders, they're the ones that understand that we are hardwired to be social and that making social connections is the greatest skill you could have. What 
I, I couldn't. I, I love the hardwired to be social. That's going to be a subhead here for the show. What are the if we're if we're hardwired and we can you know look at the DNA of that? What are those three bits that you would say that we all have within us, whether we're aware of it or leveraging them or not, that help us on that making social connections? Yeah. Okay. So um, I think there's three that yeah that you 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 brought up three. I think there's three really good ones. The first one is just empathy. Um, you know, um, empathy is an amazing thing. I mean, there's actually a, a biological uh, event that happens when we experience empathy, where our where our our system emits a chemical called oxytocin. Um, and Paul Zak, the neuroeconomist, has labeled that the trustworthiness molecule. But it really is it, it, it's present in all mammals. Reptiles don't have it. But the emission of oxytocin actually promotes trust. And let, let's walk it back. You know, when you think about human beings from the dawn of time, again, we had to band together to survive. That's why you have clans and tribes all over the world, and that's why they look very similar. We had to group together to survive. And, and the emission of oxytocin and, and, this met, you know, and where it manifests as empathy, where I feel like you get me and, 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 and I get you, that is, you know, everybody has felt that, right? You felt it. I mean, sure. when you and I first met, there was empathy there. We immediately connected. It's almost intangible. You just feel it. Right. But that is right. a very, very powerful thing. Uh, and I'm always encouraging my students, the people that I work with, whether I'm, you know, I still train Green Berets in this. You need to have your sensors up and learn as much about establishing empathy as you can. And, and you can establish empathy before the first word comes out of your mouth. Uh, you know, physicality. Right, uh, right, right. Empathy. So, so, so empathy is number one. It's, it's really, really understanding and practicing empathy because empathy uh, leads to reciprocity. If you and I have empathy, then uh, ultimately you do something for me, I'm going to want to do something for you. And that's a good thing. The next thing is storytelling. Um, story is the oldest form of communication in the world. Um, it's you know it's very very powerful. It's very very effective. It's how we it's how we mobilize people to action. You know, story is a way to arrange facts uh, in, in, to where they are. They have emotional value, which means we remember them, and we more importantly we act on them. Story also emits more oxytocin for empathy than any other form of communication in the world. So if you can tell a story. Uh, boy, you can make some serious connections. And then the final one, Mark, and this is the one that everybody has forgotten how to do, is listening. Hmm. Uh, listening is one of the most powerful connection skills in the world. Um, it's like our mama told us, we have uh, two ears and one mouth for a reason. Um, <laughs> and and the, the ability to deeply listen uh, and ask thoughtful questions as you're listening to, uh, to demonstrate good body language. Uh, validates the person's primary identity. It makes them feel valued. Therefore, there's empathy. Therefore, there's reciprocity and deeper connection. Listening. You ever heard someone say, "Man, I really like him. He's a good listener," or "She's a really good yes. listener." Yes. Yes. Why? Why do we? Why do we take note of that? Why do we think that's so cool? Because it validates our primary identity. It makes us have emotions of serotonin and feel like we have the status that we're supposed to have, and that's a good thing. So those three things I teach to Green Berets, I teach to FBI, and I teach to my civilian students. Empathy, storytelling, and listening. Absolutely essential to good connections. 
those those lessons are going to play really well with our listener, and I hope uh, you wrote them all down. Uh, I did. Uh, I, I love the idea that this isn't something I have to learn. It's something I'm hardwired for, so it's something I need to be open to and and uh, let that happen. So I don't have to learn how to be right. a listener. I am a listener. I just maybe have. Um, learned how to, you know, I spend more of my time talking, uh, which is why I like my improv class, because if I don't listen, I'm, I'm in trouble. And in your case, if you're yeah. not listening, you miss a key a bit that you need on your mission, which is to, well, you know, it isn't the mission when we're, we're building these relationships and getting embedded is you want to give those people a option a better choice on how to on who to align with rather than align aligning with someone like ISIS or the Taliban or things like that. Isn't isn't that what you're doing? Isn't that the goal? I would say even a step further, Mark, ultimately we're wanting them to realign with themselves. I mean most of these huh. places where ISIS where ISIS and the and the Taliban and Al Qaeda where they go to set up shop, they go to they go to um, well, let's see. They basically go to troubled areas in fragile states that are beyond the reach of a host of a host government, and they exploit damaged tribal and clan systems so that they can set up a safe haven. So they so a lot of the places that we go to, Mark, are places that have been intimidated and exploited by these by these awful groups, these agitators, these extremists like ISIS, who practice horrific social control. Uh, but gangs do the same thing. So, you know, it, 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 what we're trying to help them do is stand up for themselves to get to re-empower themselves at a civil society level. And when you think about it, I think a lot of us need that. I think a lot of us have, as my friend Bo Eason says, we kind of had Novocaine, Novocaine shots in our hearts. And hmm. we've kind of given over control of a lot of our lives to other people, to other things, other devices. And what we try to do, again, our motto is free the oppressed. We want to go in at a local level, and we want to help people stand up and do things on their own they otherwise would never do um, if we weren't there to kind of aid with that empowerment. Now, the interesting thing, Mark, is that many of them do this in the face of certain retribution and intimidation by some very bad actors. You and I both know the only way you can persuade someone to do something like that where they risk their family for their own life is if you have a deep relationship and they trust you. But really, I mean, all the big decisions in life are based on that, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So bringing that back home, how? tell me, you know, what the, the big mission is now. So you've got your coaching and you, you know, you're, you're teaching people how to do this, but where is this idea being applied here in the states well you know it's 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 funny man because i thought i thought when i retired i was going to go fishing right? <laughs> that, hasn't worked, that, that hasn't worked out at all um, and you live on a river you could fish just you just go to the end of your pier and hang off the end I know, but see, I keep meeting all these cool guys like you, man, and I'd rather do that than sit by the fire than fish. Um, so, you know, where else is it going? Well, for one thing, you know, I, I was going to walk away, not walk away, but I was done with a lot of the 
special operations work and was really going to move into just the leadership world. But I tell you that the, the emergence of ISIS, uh, the reemergence of al-Qaeda, and, and this broader Islamist narrative, I think, is, is worse than it's ever been. I think it's a dire threat to the United States. And so I've recommitted myself through my nonprofit, Mission America, which is really designed to help veterans come home. Mm. I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of focusing right now on, hey, my book, Game Changers, that I put out on the lessons we learned on how to fight these guys. A lot of these things we're talking about here with bottom-up empowerment. That's how you beat them. Uh, so I'm actually taking this into a town hall all over the country right now, what we're calling a Victory Garden Tour, and helping Americans understand that you're not going to beat ISIS with 250,000-pound bombs. You're not going to beat them with, quote-unquote, boots on the ground. You're going to beat them by re-empowering tribal and clan folks in the areas where these guys set up shop to push them out on their own. Um, and so that is, and Americans are going to have to slap the table and demand our politicians do that in 2016. So that's one area. I'm teaching this to law enforcement. Believe it or not, it's very applicable in some of our gang-infested and organized crime communities. They're very interested in this approach. Um, and then just like I've trained you, Mark, I mean, I believe that our leaders today in this trust-depleted, conflict-riddled society of ours that's hyper-connected yet disconnected, this is the type of leadership that Americans need to have who are going to have a strategic impact. When you say hyper-connected yet disconnected, I, I, I resonate with that because, you know, we're only a tweet away or a Facebook look away. What does the disconnected look like to you? Well, I, you know, here, here's, the, here's the experiment. Go into a restaurant, uh, go into an airport lobby. Those are always fun to watch. And you'll see 80 to 90, if not 95% of the people in there are on some kind of mobile device. Um, and, you know, and they are in a different world. They are, they are bridging. Uh, there's, two types of, there's two types of trust and social capital. Social capital is the things that it's the, it's the uh, kind of the intangible sense of community that bridges yep. us together as yep. a society. Yep. Uh, bridge, bridging social capital is a beautiful thing. It allows us to bridge beyond our organizations, our ethnicities, our groups. And, you know, this hyper-connected environment that we live in, my goodness, we can bridge globally. It's amazing. However, bridging social capital was designed to be built on the shoulders of the most true, transparent, and effective forms of social capital, which is bonding. That's where clans, family, kin, you know, your mom, your dad, your brother, your best friend, you bond. You know you have each other's back. You listen. You tell stories. There's empathy. There's 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 understanding. That uh, essence of interpersonal communication is the most fundamental element of human interaction, and that will never go out of style. That will never uh, trend a different direction, at least not in our lifetime. That is deep-seated, visceral DNA stuff. Our bridging social capital through these uh, digital devices and different networks is starting to move away from regular, everyday bonding skills. So we've got, on one hand, this amazing ability to bridge and go into uh, different networks and things like that, but it's, it's, a, it's miles wide and an inch deep because there's no bonding social capital for us to stand on. So you don't think just liking someone's post on Facebook is bonding then? <laughs> it's completely <laughs> transactional. And it's an inch deep. And, and, and I will tell you right now, when push comes to shove, when you ask people to do things of, of substance, 
whether that's buy from you, uh, whether that is to follow you, like really follow you into something that might impact them good or bad. Uh, they're not going to they're not going to make that decision on the merits of how many likes you have or even what <laughs> even the essence of the deal. They're still going to make that decision on the same criteria that they would have used 100,000 years ago to grab a wooden spear and go help you take down that man. They either trust you or they don't. And if they don't, they're not going to act on it. When you were speaking about building on the shoulders of bonding and the examples of, you know, family and kin and clan and long, long relationships built on trust, as a, you know, a business person, I am, you know, meeting someone for the first time and I, I like to say I want to go from zero to friend, you know, as quickly as possible because I don't have... 20 years to get to know you have you and, and again i'm going to guess that that's the same for you you walk into a a, a group of guys that you're going to teach um or you know let's let's do this in you know current real time uh you you need to as you've already said be empathetic be a storyteller and listening are there some specific things that our listener could think about on that first time I meet someone and I am getting that good impression, I am having that visceral feel, how do I, you know, I don't have, to, like I said, I don't have 20 years to bond with you, but I know how important that is. What, what, what should right. I be looking for? Well, first of all, I mean, I always tell people when I get up in front of them on stage when I'm speaking is, you know, in, Green Ber in the Green Berets, most of the places I go to, I have to make a connection in five minutes or I'm dead. Mm. Um, so how would you like to have that skill set? <laughs> you know, um, and, yeah. and you know, that's, that's how we train. That's our attitude that's going in. And so it is, it is life and death connections and storytelling for us, literally, um, because we're 12 guys. We're behind the lines. We're working with some tribal group or clan that doesn't like us from the beginning is suspicious of us, and we are surrounded on purpose. So only our connections, our relationships are going to keep us alive. There's no way uh, that we're going to be able to do it without that. So with that in mind, here's how we come at it. We do absolutely subscribe that you can make deeper connections more effectively and faster um, than, you know, than, than most people think you can, right? Um you, you really can't, uh, but you got you got to make up your mind if you want to do that. One thing that I would suggest to your listeners, Mark, that no one does is mm. actually do do research on the person you're going to meet with or connect with well in advance. You know, dispense with all of the so. Where are you from? If you're sitting down today and having a conversation in this multimedia, just Google it age, and you are asking someone where they're from or some other routine question. Uh, you are you are probably going to insult them, um, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Because because the reality is there is all, just a little bit of homework on the front end where you know someone is where they're from, you know a little bit about their backstory, and you can demonstrate that thoughtful knowledge as you sit down with them. It is a complete game changer. Um, you did that with me when you came down here. You had already gone on my website and done homework. I had done that with you. And you know what that allows us to do? We go right to a deeper connection. Last thing I'll say, 
people love to hear their name spoken back to them. Studies have shown that. You know what they love even more? They love to hear their story told back to them even more. People love to hear their story told back to them. Absolutely. It is the highest form of identity validation is to, is to demonstrate that you know someone else's story. You can go much quicker, much deeper on the connection, as long as it's transparent, as long as it's sincere. If you demonstrate that you've taken the time to understand someone's story, to internalize it, and then to even work it back into your story to them, you're at a whole different level before you even get started. Well, let's, let's practice that right now. Uh, when I landed in Tampa, you had just come back from your first Victory Garden tour in Albuquerque, and I was um, I'm very I'm just very interested in, in what it is that you're doing. I, I just think it's it's mm-hmm. so important, and I want that's why we're on the show to figure out how, how we can help. But I was absolutely blown away at the deep level of knowledge that you have about your enemy, your enemy being ISIS and radical Islamic Mm -hmm. uh, terrorism. And that you, and I, and I listen a lot. I mean, I'm I'm like, you know, I like to feel like I'm well-read. I'd not heard anybody explain the motivation the fact-based motivation for them, for what they're doing, that I learned from you in three minutes. I, I, you just put a whole different spin on it, and it made it uh, a lot, uh, I don't want to scare anybody, but it made it a lot, a lot more real to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Uh, most people, I, I get that a lot, Mark. A lot of people tell me that. Huh. Um, well, now, and, I mean, and, no wonder. Well, you know, and it's, it's not something I take a lot of pleasure in, in, in the sense of, you know, I, I'm definitely not wanting to scare anybody. But here's what I think, is I, I believe that, uh, for the most part, since we started this war after 9-11, uh, I believe America, almost from the very beginning, outsourced the war to a handful of politicians, special operators, some law enforcement and intelligence personnel, and most of America kind of went about its business. And at the time, I think that made sense to everybody. Fifteen years later, three times longer than World War II, I don't think that was the right call. I think what we should have done was mobilize like we did in World War II, where Americans were all in to feed the troops, to help each other. They grew victory gardens, 20 million in all. They produced 9 to 10 million tons of food, more than the government actually produced to ship overseas. And more importantly, it showed an all-in mindset from every American that we were in this thing until we defeated this enemy. And what really bothers me today is it seems that, one, we're not all in as a nation. We don't have our primary identity as Americans. We have way too many hyphens in front of our identity. Um, And number two is I don't think we understand this enemy. I don't think we take him serious. And and that is going to be very troublesome for us if, if we don't get our head around that. So I appreciate that, and I feel like my mission in life right now and with my nonprofit Mission America, is to help Americans in this election year understand this enemy, who they really are, what they want, what they're going to try to do to us to get it, and help our citizens evaluate their political candidates honestly and for who's going to do the best job of defeating these guys. 
what is it going to take to defeat them, Scott? Well, first you got to decide to win. You know, and I say this in my book, Game Changers. You know, there's a lot of people, believe it or not, Mark, I know this is almost unfathomable, but there's a lot of people in the U.S. government that actually don't think we can win, that have said to me, Scott, you know, your subtitle, going local to defeat violent extremists, that's way too strong. We need, you know, we're not going to defeat these guys. And I'm thinking, man, what if Churchill or FDR or Eisenhower had said that? You know, uh, how is this enemy any different to our way of life? How is their horrific social control and ridiculously brutal narrative any different than Goebbels and the six million Jews that were slaughtered by Germany? How are they any different? And what if those leaders had said, you know what, you can't win? And, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of officials today on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, that are more interested in trying not to lose than they are trying to win. So that's number one. And number two is you've really got to get honest and real about who your enemy is. You've got to call your enemy out, Islamist, violent extremists, any individual organization that would visit violence uh, on those that don't subscribe to their radical view of Islam. Uh, you've got to call them out, and then you've got to find out where they're most vulnerable. Mark, these guys are most vulnerable in their narrative, not globally. Their narrative is actually pretty weak. Uh, and they're also most vulnerable at a local level where they basically treat people like hell, uh, horrific social control, uh, both abroad and at home. We could mobilize people to rise up against them. We're not doing it. Is that a fa- the failure of leadership then is not just on the politicians, but do you think it's at a, a local level as well? Well, I think the failure of leadership is, is simply that we're, we're wanting this enemy to be something that they're not. Uh, we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole. This is not a traditional enemy. It's not even a traditional asymmetric enemy. This is an enemy that is, that is, is following a strategy rooted in a distorted Islamic prophecy of the end of days, of the apocalypse. Uh, and so at a, at a global level, at a macro level, our leadership are not even aware of what ISIS wants and how they intend to go about it, uh, of that they actually believe that they can kill people and take their organs, that they can cut the heads off of Yazidis, that they can burn Jordanian officers alive because it's the end of days and any, all, things, all things go. You know, I mean, that's a crazy, uh, radical philosophy, but they follow it. That's number, you know, so that's key. And then at the local level, though, Mark, I believe that our politicians are just not diving deep enough on this. They're not rolling their sleeves up, and they're not looking at how this enemy operates and where he's vulnerable. Our mechanism, our industrial war machine, is designed for top down, not bottom up. So they don't want to see that. They don't want to see that most of the solutions for this are local solutions, and it revolves involves trust and empowerment of our forces and our, 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 our instruments of power at a very local bottom-up level. Hard politicians and generals to get their head around that one. Tell us about, um, there's something called VSO uh, that Mm -hmm. was very successful, but but the military's no longer doing that. Tell the listener what that is all about, because that sounded pretty effective and sounds like that was better than bombing. Yeah, well, it stands for for Village Stability Operations, or, or yeah, VSO. Uh, it's really a big part of the book, Game Changers, that I wrote. Uh, and by the way, you can get that book at the, the gamechangersbook.com. Uh, 
but but VSO, Mark, really evolved after about nine or ten years of fighting in Afghanistan. Remember how I told you earlier that Green Berets were kind of the modern-day Lawrence's of Arabia? Yeah. Well, we kind of forgot all that after 9-11. We got real mad, and we went and put scalps on the barn for about ten years. We just focused on attrition, hunting the enemy down, bombing him into oblivion. In 2006, according to Antonio Gustosi, we were spending $16 million for every Taliban we killed. Um, so, you know, we were spending inordinate amounts of money to, to walk these guys down. It was the central focus. We looked around in 2009. We saw there were more Taliban than when we started. So we started looking at how stability really works in these places. And when it was stable, for example, in Afghanistan before the Soviets, and it was where locals were largely handling their own affairs from the bottom up. And we saw that in a lot of these places, tribes and clans were either actively resisting or were willing to resist. So we got back to our roots. We put on our indigenous clothing, grew out our beard, moved out into these villages, Magnificent Seven style, like the old Yule Brenner movie. And we started working with these folks to stand up on their own. And in less than one year in Afghanistan, we went from 75 peasant farmers and six villages to 15,000 peasant farmers in 113 villages and had Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar writing in their memoirs that this was the greatest threat facing their insurgency. Huh. In one year? In, in less than one year. We also uh, got funded by Congress for $500 million um, and, you know, mobilized a huge effort to take this thing on. Very Unfortunately, very late in the war. It was too late. Uh, and the Obama administration was already moving toward withdrawal. For your listeners, the point I want to make on that one is uh, anytime you think you can't punch above your weight, anytime you think that you're just a little guy, you can't get something done, we got that program started. I was a, I was a young lieutenant colonel at the time, a couple of civilians. We drew this thing out on a napkin uh, in a bar, of course. Um, and you know what? We started pushing it, and it happened, and it went high order. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time in American history – where everyday folks who are committed to punching above their weight can actually do it if they believe they can. I want to end right there because I this this the visual that you gave us of punching above your weight and being able to do something much bigger than yourself. I mean, it just it's a lot of what I think. You know, I'm a, a Tedster and believe everyone has an idea mm -hmm. worth spreading and believe that. You know, one person's idea can change the world. And, you know, here, a couple of guys in a bar figure out how to um, figure out how to get $500 million out of Congress. That's a big one. Uh, but but doing that kind of project and now one guy and you've got a tribe, you've got a great tribe. That's how I met you is through other members of your tribe. And now you're on my tribe and I'm in yours. I uh, feel like right. that punching above your weight is... It's, it's a good one to end on. Scott, one of the things we do in each of our episodes is um, we, we ask our guests to give a title to the conversation. We went, we went off on a lot of different areas. If someone's just scanning through a list of episodes on our show and they settle on this title, what does that title say? Huh. Uh, boy, that's a good question. Um, how about, you know, punching above your weight from the bottom up? <laughs> I love that. Scott, thank you so much for, for um, joining us. I, I know that um, 
people can Google you, that's Scott Mann with two N's, but you're pretty much on the radio or on television a few times a week because you're the yeah. go-to expert for CNN and Fox and NBC in this whole area of, of ISIS and, and its impact. So people can see you. I right. encourage them to. Um, where's, uh, where's your website, the, the Man Camp website? Yeah, so the, if you go to manup.com, that's where you can. I would love people to join, subscribe to my newsletter, and follow me there. Uh, also, I'm on Twitter at dscottman, two T's, two N's. Um, if you're wanting to learn more about ISIS and this kind of thing, a great place to go is to the manupreport.com with two N's, and it's just like a one-stop learning center with videos and news and everything. All the stuff that I do, I repurpose and put it right there. And then finally, Mark, if it's okay, I would ask folks if, if they'd like to get a copy of my book. Uh, all proceeds go to our nonprofit, uh, Mission America, but the book can be obtained at thegamechangersbook.com uh, with an S. Uh, and, um, and they can also find out more about us if they go to the realmissionamerica.org and they can learn all about how we're reconnecting warriors and citizens you know, around the threat of ISIS, but also just helping our men and women come home. I'd love to get on another call with you sometime and maybe talk about that, about how every American can help bring our veterans home, because I think that's probably... That's a, that's a huge one, Scott. I'll on. take you up on yeah. that. Uh, yeah. I, my, uh, I exist because of such a program, literally. I was in uh, yeah. Union Central Station uh, down in Los Angeles uh, last week, and I was telling my host that that is where my mom met my dad. And uh, my go. mom's family would, uh, there was an effort during the war uh, to, when guys would come home on leave, they would uh -huh. uh, come to Union Station and there was, it was a setup where you could adopt a guy for a weekend kind of thing. Yeah. And come home, feed him, and that's how my mom met my dad. There you go. There you go, there you go. And lastly, uh, I'll be on Fox and Friends I believe this Tuesday, um, more to that'll be going out on Twitter and everything. But we're actually going to be kicking off the Victory Garden tour on Fox and Friends this Tuesday. So, real excited about that, and I hope your listeners will follow in. Scott, thank you so much, and I want to thank again California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Our podcasting partner, Polestring Press, and this studio just keeps getting better. I love these new microphones, huh? A lot of, a lot of fun. Enjoy oh, these. my gosh. And uh, Cielo24, who provides the searchable captions for our show. The 805 Project is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. We want to thank them as well. If you want more information about partnering with our efforts here, go to 805connect.com. And Patrick, how could people help us with, with this episode? Well, uh, I think number one is uh, reach out to any vet you know, and if you don't know a vet, you need to find a vet. That's ridiculous, and thank them for their service because uh, we are uh, all a lot safer because of what of the, the hard sacrifices that they make. So, uh, thank a vet, and then uh, maybe recommend the show to them. Let them uh, let them hear what they could uh, start with this one. Yeah, for sure. I love that. So, I would love to hear from you personally. Um, those of you that you write uh, to us through the newsletter and. Uh, through the podcast uh, with really great ideas. Thank you so much for that. Keep them coming. You can send Mark at 805 Connect mail to me. So until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. Mm -hmm.